week what we did was we started to take what we've learned about the large brushstrokes about what it means to live like a Christian, like in reality, like the real world. And then we applied it to some of the lies that the culture believes. So we could begin to understand how best to reach a culture that believes these things and see it with the proper lens on, to see it from the proper perspective. And that was, of course, after we have d- d- dived into Hosea and applied those same large brushstrokes of the Christian worldview to Scripture and how that can inform us. Today we're going to continue that. We're on line two. Last week we covered the lie of what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Today we're covering this lie that is called always trust your emotions. Always trust your emotions. Follow your heart. It's said by school counselors, coaches, pastors, loving parents, Disney movies. And there are seasons, I promise you, where you should follow your heart. One day, hopefully, y'all will fall in love. Might be wise to follow your heart. You might walk onto a college campus, meet the faculty, meet cool friends, and in that instant, you might want to follow your heart. You might be offered a dream job. I'm talking that job with that company that you always wanted, with that position, with that paycheck, right? And you might, in that moment, want to follow your heart. So your first fill in the blank is this. Follow your heart is not garbage psychology. But it isn't complete. Follow your heart is not garbage psychology, but it is incomplete. If statistics play out, one of you will fall in love with a non-Christian. At that moment, you should not follow your heart. You might love the faculty. You might love the friends. At that college campus. You might love the college campus. But if they don't have the major that you want to do for the rest of your life, you should not follow your heart. You might get offered that dream position, but you might be ignorant of internal company practices. Do your research. It might not be wise to follow your heart or in regards to that job, follow the paycheck. As we're going through the lies the culture tells us, the second lie that the culture has shoved down our throat is literally this. It's your next fill in the blank. We have a lot of fill in the blanks tonight. You're welcome, Mr. Penn. Always trust your emotions. Always trust your emotions. This is repackaged in many different ways. Follow your heart. Trust your instincts. Go with your gut feeling. Right? These are all the same type of pop psychology, right? And while this is good advice, sometimes it's incomplete advice. And that is what makes the lie so deadly. Because there is a shred of truth to it. The Bible says in Jeremiah 17.9 that the heart is deceitful above all things. It's your next fill in the blank. The heart is deceitful above all things. And we know the state of the human heart, right? If you've been in Yak at all, you know from Romans 3.10, it tells us that no one seeks God, no, not one. That's your next one in the blank. No one seeks God, no, not one. We are prone to wander. We are prone to worry, if you're like me. 
we are prone to negativity. Your next fill in the blank is think one you can take home with. Hope is not our natural tongue. Hope is not our natural tongue. This is what's true about our hearts and reality. Often our hearts distort reality, deprive us of insight, and needlessly damage our relationship. And unfortunately, our negative thoughts play on each other. I joke about this because it's kind of true and kind of ridiculous at the same time. But I always talk about like the, the FM talk radio station that's going on in my head where like three people, it's like talk radio, right? Like three people are commenting. You use the analogy of talk radio. They're critiquing the coach, telling them, telling you how much better they could do of the job if they were in charge. The GM's an idiot. You should have done this, right? And all of us have kind of that FM talk radio station going on in our heads where we're constantly second-guessing ourselves and telling ourselves things that we would never say aloud, right? But it plays on each other. Our emotions play off each other. And unfortunately, they build deep divots that direct our actions, This has been proven in the psychological literature. Okay? And I think if we can be honest, it's just a brute fact. If we have lived life at all, we know that our negative emotions lead to negative consequences. I remember when I was in college, I had a job that I dreaded going to. I hated this job. And all day... I'd be playing potential conversations or conflicts that would happen at the workplace that evening. Of course, none of them would ever happen, right? But I'd be, I'd be playing potential conversations, and I'd be worried. And by the time I was literally driving to work, I would be sick to my stomach. And of course, my time on the clock was miserable. And then I would go through the cycle again the next time I would be set on the schedule. But then I had a mentor who challenged me to find two things that I actually liked about that job and focus on that. You can always find one thing. True story. Two can be difficult, especially at this job. Okay? I liked, not loved, mind you, one of my coworkers. She was funny and cracked jokes. That's one. And I loved surprising people with good service because I like good service. And it wasn't in large supply at this place where I worked. Okay? I loved giving people good service. So I went to work focused on those two things. I'm going to give people good service. I'm going to listen to my coworker crack funny jokes. And guess what? The emotional thing I enjoyed led to a better evening. Do you see how I built into my psychological makeup and it influenced my reality? Our emotions might inform us, but a mature individual learns to question their emotions and hold them in check. They should not define us. This next fill in the blank is key. Happiness, maturity, even enlightenment require rejecting the untruth of emotional reasoning and learning instead to question our feelings. And if we don't question our feelings, we will find reasons 
to believe our feelings. If we don't question our feelings, we will find reasons to believe our feelings. We are creatures that want to justify what we believe. It's what makes us human and dangerous in a vacuum. We can convince ourselves of almost anything. Lukanoff says in the book that's um, uh, footnoted at the bottom of your sheet that his patients tended to get themselves caught in a feedback loop in which irrational negative beliefs caused powerful negative feelings, which in turn seemed to drive patients' reasoning, motivating them to find evidence to support their negative feelings. It's this feedback loop. And this is your next one on the blank. We seek out reasons to trust our emotions, even if they are irrational. We seek out reasons to trust our emotions, even if they are irrational. There's a reason conspiracy theories are so popular. We will justify anything. Go to the dark web. Jump into some of those conspiracy theories. Dave's been there. He built some of that area. Okay. And like I remember, I remember I saw this with a friend who ended up marrying a non-believer. Gosh, she tried so hard to rationalize it. I love him. He loves me. We're meant to be together. God wouldn't have put us in the same place to fall in love if he didn't want us to. She tried so hard to rationalize it. Three years into marriage, guess what? She's a little miserable because she wanted to go to church. And he didn't. She wanted to have kids. He didn't. He wanted to drink heavily on the weekends. She didn't. We will try to justify anything. Point is, it's your next one in the blank. We seek out reasons to trust our emotions, even if they are irrational. Oh, that's the same fill in the blank. You're right. I just said it twice. We seek out reasons to trust our emotions, even if they are irrational. So, AJ, what do I do? Because I do this all the time, too. It's not just that person, right? It's me. This is a mirror. I'm holding up a mirror here. Okay? And you should be holding up a mirror, too. Okay? So what do you do? First, the first thing you need to do is you need to identify false emotions you might struggle with. All of us have false emotions we struggle with. Everyone in this room. Okay? Some false ways of thinking. And I want to identify a few for you. And these are called cognitive distortions in psychology. This is what they label them. I'm going to go through nine. It's real easy. I'm going to read one. I'm going to explain it. You're going to be like, oh, I know that person. Right? Miss Susie Q from Spanish class. Mm-hmm. She's got that. She's got that one and that. She's got that one, that one, and that. She's a nut job, right? Which is number seven. Like like that. It's quick. Do not do that. I know you're going to be tempted because you're human and you don't want to think about yourself. But look at what I'm saying and see if any of these ring a bell. Okay? So these are some cognitive distortions in psychology. The first is emotional reasoning. Emotional reasoning. If you don't know how to spell these words, make it up. I'm not grading it. This is when this happens. I feel depressed. Therefore, I'm not a good softball player. Or... Gosh, I just feel awful. I bet no one wants to be friends with me. 
You see how the emotion leads the conversation. So if your internal FM radio station ever starts with an emotion and then follows up with some sort of statement, you might do have emotional reasoning. This is, I'm leading with feeling. Um, Taylor gets this. She isn't one, by the way, but when we went through the marriage counseling stuff, one of the marriage possibilities is you believe in like a fairy tale type love story, right? It's the type of, oh, I just love them. Like everything, it's so emotionally driven. The whole relationship is so emotionally driven. That's not a bad thing, but they need to know that that's how, what leads them in relationships. And again, this is not necessarily a bad thing. You just need to be aware of it so that you can actually question it and deal with it. So none of these things make you like severely broken. You just need to be aware of it so you can make proper decisions. Number two, it's a big word. I don't even think it's a real word, so don't worry about this on your ACT, Sam. The second is catastrophizing. Say that word five times fast. Catastrophizing, 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 catastrophizing. It's the idea of something catastrophic. Catastrophic. This is when you focus on the worst possible outcome and see that as the most likely. I shouldn't ask that person to homecoming because they'll probably say no, so I won't do it. I'm not even going to apply to that college because more than likely I won't get in. And then I'll feel bad about myself when, when, when I don't. See how they've already determined the outcome? And we justify this type of thinking, at least I justify this type of thinking when I say things like, well, I'm just preparing myself for the worst. So what I do? I'm, I'm being logical. I'm preparing myself for the worst. Not realizing what it does to our small decision-making long-term, which this can have major problems long-term. The third is overgeneralizing. Overgeneralizing. I'm making sure all the words tonight have at least seven syllables to keep you on your toes. Overgeneralizing. I always miss that line, so I'm probably an awful actor. I never do good in chemistry, so what's the point of paying attention in class? <laughs> Amen. Okay. I tried to come up with a chemistry pun there. Got nothing. So. Um, the fourth is dichotomous thinking. If you don't want to write dichotomous, you can put black and white thinking. Or all or nothing thinking. Viewing people in all or nothing terms or events. I get rejected by everyone. That was a complete waste of time. Ever heard yourself saying that? Fifth one is mind reading. Mind reading. Maybe I will do a whole talk or a whole series on this one day because this is so prevalent. I will say this. I'm about to say it about seven times. It's your next fill in the blank underneath mind reading. Stop assigning motive. Stop it. Stop it. Stop. Ari, stop it. Mia, stop it. Alexis, I don't know if you do it, but stop it. Zach, stop it. Sam? Stop it, okay? Stop assigning motives. Stop assigning motives. Stop it. If you ever have said, so-and-so 
did this because blank. They intentionally hurt me because they don't like me. They lied to me because they really hate God and aren't Christians. Blah, blah, blah. Stop assigning motive. Stop assigning motive. Stop it. Brendan, stop it. Ben, stop it. Yeah, I need to tell my stuff. I'm saying this in the mirror. AJ, stop it. So every year, I hate this time of year. I'm just going to be real with you. I hate election season, right? Because I put it, I think it's my civic duty to be informed. So every person on the ballot, which is a ridiculously long ballot this year, I was on their website. took me two and a half hours to go through issues for every single candidate. You know how much motive they're assigning to the... It just drove me nuts. They want to build a wall. They hate Mexican people. (laughs) They want... They want some, you know, common sense gun restrictions. They hate the Second Amendment and want to take your guns. Do, do. It's literally, oh, I hate that it's the worst two and a half hours, but I feel like I got to do it, right? Stop assigning motive. We can talk about this more in transformation groups. But when you find yourself assigning motive, when you find yourself doing it, because most people do this, it's your next fill in the blank. Assume you're wrong. Because you probably are. Assume you're wrong. So, when Mia, later when you're like, Aaliyah left that mess out in our room because she doesn't respect me as an older sister. Now, when you do that, you need to be like, no, that's probably wrong because I assigned motive. And then you'll probably be right. Okay? So just stop. Stop assigning motive. So we're so quick to rush to judge. Sixth, sixth, labeling. This is when we assign global negative traits to yourself or another person. Sayings like, I'm such a loser. Or, that person is fake. This takes a whole of an individual and puts it into a small little category. Individuals are much more complex than the label that we typically give them, especially if they're the enemy. Seven, negative filtering. This is when you have a tendency to look only at the negative and not the positive of a situation. If anyone's ever called you a negative Nancy or a negative Nelly or a negative Niall, whatever other end names there are out there, um, You might have this. You always are looking at the negative side. Eighth is called discounting positives. It's the opposite of negative filtering, discounting positives. It's when you actually have positive situations, but you downplay it. Okay? That was a great dinner. But my mom and dad are supposed to make dinner. That's their jobs. That was a great gift. I love Christmas. But grandma's supposed to get me something for Christmas. That's her job. Right? That quiz, I'm, I got an A, but that was an easy quiz I should have. It's always discounting positives. Last on our list, and it's not the only one, these are just the most popular, is blaming. This is putting all of a problem on everyone else but yourself, making sure to take none of the blame. My parents cause all, all my problems. It's all my teacher's fault for my lousy grade. 
If you were on those political websites this week, it's all the Republicans' fault. It's all the Democrats' fault. Blah, blah, blah. Mind you, no one blames the Libertarian or the Green Party. No one. (laughs) They're safe. Too small. small. (laughs) Care about blaming them. Now, I bring up this list for two two reasons. I want you to be aware of where your heart leads you, which is which one sounds most like you. Um, You can circle multiple. So I want you to take the next 30 seconds. If there was one that stood out to you where you're like, yeah, that's me, put a star next to it, circle it, do that now. You can have multiple, I can promise you. (laughs) I got a couple, okay? I got a couple here. I've probably done all these at some point in the last year, but there's a couple I've done multiple times. The second thing I want you to pull from this. The problem with the culture is not that you're experiencing these emotions. The problem with the culture is not that you're experiencing these emotions. These are just part of the fall. Okay, We, can just, we know where these emotions come from. Man fell into sin. The lie the culture tells you is that these ideas can be trusted. That you can trust your heart when you blame others. When you mind read, when you overgeneralize, these are all false. Can't do that. One of the natural outcomes of this sort of thinking is something that's called the microaggression. This has gotten a lot of suppressed in the past five years. It didn't exist when I was in high school. I keep inventing new words. I can't wait till I'm an old man. A whole new dictionary. Um, You might have heard this word thrown around in high school, microaggression. This is what a microaggression is by definition. Brief and commonplace daily verbal, behavioral, or environmental indignities, whether intentional or unintentional, that communicate hostile, derogatory, or negative racial slights and insults towards people of color. That was the original. Now it's gender, sexual orientation, hairstyle, I mean, just everything, right? Everything is a potential microaggression. You know, you you like Nickelback, those things. (laughs) I think we can all agree that there are people and groups that are marginalized in society. I'm not going to deny that. Jesus said that there will always be that. The problem with microaggressions is the intentional or unintentional part of the definition. If you bump into someone by accident... It can still be seen as an act of aggression by the person bumped into, whether it was intended or not, according to this definition. Charity can be thrown out the window. Because how I feel someone treated me is the standard for whether it's true. And this is the lie that is promoted on the college campus and in the media. Teaching people to see more aggression is in ambiguous interactions, take more offense, feel more negative emotions, and avoid questioning their initial interpretations, strikes, I think, anyone with common sense as unwise. But we see this every month, moments on the news, where intent doesn't matter. It only matters what impact it made. And if anyone feels offended, impact... Instead of asking whether they have the right to be intent, they get to choose. This creates a defensive culture, one that is more worried about how a statement 
might be received instead of created. This is your last fill in the blank. It's actually flipped on the back. It's one of the... Hopefully you figure that out by now. When we deem another's action or statement a microaggression, we lose the chance for discussion, depth, and empathy. And we quickly affirm one of those nine cognitive distortions. Let me give you like an example. Okay? Say a bump into... Who can take a joke? Okay. I bump into Ben. Okay? I bump into Ben. Or let's take that back. I don't bump into Ben. Ben bumps into me. On Ooh, his scooter. I can I can be offended and feel I have the moral right to degrade him as an individual because this is a microaggression against old people. What? Right? He just Ben hates old people. That's what he communicated when he hit me with his scooter. Because old people aren't on scooters. And he just hates non-scooter old people. Right? And I have ever, I under this scenario, I have that right. Remember? Because truth here, again, like we learned last week, is subjective to whoever is offended. It's absurd, right? But this literally, you turn on the news, don't turn on the news. But assuming you do, like, this happens all the time. And we've removed the opportunity of me going, hey, are you okay? Like, I should be asking, like, dude, you typically are good with a scooter, right? Like, why'd you run into me? Like, oh, I just fell down over there, and I'm kind of seeing double. Like, that could be that could be his intent, right? I'm not really seeing straight. I took a bad fall, you know? Or he could really hate me. He could look me in the eyes and be like, oh, no, you're just a lousy old person who doesn't speak, <laughs> Right? But then I have a conversation, I can have empathy, and then we can connect. Instead of affirming my mind reading, my labeling, and my blaming. And when you affirm that in people, they continue to do it over and over again. And it builds in more and more distrust and anxiety. Lukanoff says in the book, The Coddling of the American Mind, if you teach students that intention doesn't matter, you also encourage students to find more things offensive, leading them to experience more negative impacts. And you also tell them that whoever says or does the thing they find offensive are aggressors who have committed acts of bigotry against them. Then you are probably fostering feelings of victimization, anger, and hopelessness in your students. They will come to see the world and even the university as a hostile place where things never seem to get better. And we have a large people group that feel that way. I mean, so many people are angry at the world, right? For you all being in the 1% of the whole entire world, we have a lot to be angry about. Here's the state of the world today. We are convinced we are at one of the lowest points in human history, but we rarely look at the freedoms we have. More people are free today on the planet Earth. More people are out of poverty today on the planet Earth on a global scale than have ever been in history. Ever. Ever. Like, we're on the upswing when it comes to prosperity and freedom. 
But according to some, we are literally a step away from the apocalypse. And that is exactly where this type of thinking leads. Not necessarily to a global apocalypse, but a self that is convinced they are in one. Your emotions are not to be trusted. It is not garbage psychology, but it is an incomplete one. Before we head to transformation groups, I want to remind you of our last week's lie. And I want you to see how these two fit together. Next week's lie fits on top of it and makes it even worse. Okay? I want you to see how they fit together. Last week's lie was, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. It was the belief that if you are in an uncomfortable situation or are emotionally traumatized, then it is to be avoided at all cost. Notice how this can go together. If you feel like someone has hurt you without knowing their intent, then you have every right to remove that person from your life or worse, try to hurt them in return. Not because they actually did anything, but because you feel like they did. The subjective idea that my emotions dictate reality makes it a moral duty to avoid negative emotions under that worldview. And it is well that makes it deeper and deeper pit. You will meet people that have dug this trench of social and emotional disease so deep that getting them out of it will literally take a work of God. And it will take helping someone to learn to forgive and die to self. The gospel that we have is the only answer to this. Again, that's one of the reasons I'm presenting these lies, because I want you to see that this is what a a large majority of your culture believes. And you have the cure. You can be bold with the gospel, because, man, this is kind of nice to be able to see the world clearly. You can bring hope when hope is not our native tongue.